Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. We are going back into the book of Acts. This is part 11, New King James. If you're following along, I highly recommend it. Get your New King James Bible out and follow with us tonight as we teach through the book of Acts. These are different than our other teachings because these are where we go verse by verse. And my goal is not to get super, super deep to where you need scuba gear or I get so deep you fall asleep. My goal is to make it applicable and to explain what's going on in the book of Acts in as easy to understand way as possible. Okay, so this is not gonna be some deep thing where this is the Greek word, this is the Greek word, this is the Greek, because I wanna make you be able to understand the Bible and I believe that the Bible is still powerful in English, amen. It's called the sufficiency of scripture. So, if you're just jumping on, we went through last week, Acts 17 and 18. So Acts 17, just to recap, Paul t- uh, preached in Thessalonica and there was a great revival move of God. The religious people, as they always do, got mad. They got jealous of him. They threw him out of the synagogue, accused him of being a troublemaker. Paul ends up at the Bereans where they received the message, but also didn't just receive the message. The Bereans looked to make sure that it lined up with scripture. Paul then went from there to Athens where he taught in the synagogue. He reasoned with the philosophers. It was a city full of idols where Paul challenged the idol to the unknown God. We talked about that and there was a great move of God that happened there as well. In Athens, Acts 18, Paul teams up with Aquila and Priscilla. They are all tent makers in Corinth and some Jews, including the synagogue president and his family, embraces Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul, again, ends up kicked out of the synagogue and he ends up at the home of Titus Justice, a Gentile believer. So this is a theme you're gonna see again tonight. It's like Isaiah, when are you gonna stop saying Paul got kicked out of the synagogue? Everywhere Paul was going, he would preach in the synagogue and then after a certain time they would kick him out because he was preaching Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. So that was happening with Paul. As Paul left Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla demonstrated their thankfulness to God with a vow. That was when you saw um, they cut their hair, okay. And then Apollos, an educated Alexandrian Jew and student of John the Baptist, arrived in Ephesus and taught in the synagogue, and Priscilla and Aquila basically discipled him, filled in the gaps in his theology, which leads us to one of my favorite chapters in all of the book of Acts. You're going to see here in a minute, Acts chapter 19. So we are in Acts chapter 19, verse 1, and the Bible says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Okay, so Paul had planned previously to visit Ephesus two different times. But if you remember in Acts 16, Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in Asia. So instead he ended up going to Macedonia. If you remember the vision he had of the man of Macedonia, Paul was prohibited from going to Ephesus. He had tried previously, and now Paul is making his his uh, making his target being Ephesus. After his ministry in Corinth, Paul now is gonna end up at Ephesus where he's going to rejoin Aquila and Priscilla. This is after he spent some time in Antioch. This city was given over to the occult more than any other city Paul had ever visited. You're talking about every practice of witchcraft, every type of idol, every type of sorcery. They were a supernatural city. Ephesus was known for being of the occult, of witchcraft, and of Greek deities and Greek gods. So this is going to present new challenges for Paul while also creating opportunities for the presence of God and the power of God to manifest. How many of you know in the chat, type this out, where the sin abounds, grace abounds even greater, that where there are people in bondage, there's an opportunity for the healing power and the delivering power of God to take place. And I believe this and I've seen this. Some of the most powerful miracles happen in some of the worst places. Some of the worst situations in our lives, you can testify to this, have been when, or have miracles have been when we've been in terrible situations. It's when the presence of God is manifest. It's when the power of God is made known. You look at some powerful testimonies of people that have come out of the occult or come out of drugs or come out of darkness. God delivers them, saves them. There's that powerful encounter because where the sin abounds, there's a greater level of grace that is able to move in, able to be released. And so as Paul's facing this city that's full of idol worship and the occult, Paul's gonna see a great demonstration of the power of God. Acts 19, two, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, they responded, we have not as so much heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, 
Paul has not been to Ephesus long when he runs into a group of believers that according to Luke, these men believed, they'd been baptized, they talked and looked like Christians, but Paul recognizes there's something missing in their life. And he asks the straightforward question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the response is, we have not so much as heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And friend, this is the sad reality in the church today. We have all of these believers, all these Christians that know little to nothing about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God in us, the promise to us that God would dwell in us and through us through the person of the Holy Spirit, a part of the triune Godhead. The Holy Spirit is the inward working of God that lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit who is the helper who teaches and reminds us. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts the world of sin. He's the one that's a source of wisdom and power and revelation. The Holy Spirit guides us to all truth, including knowledge of things to come. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to believers. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is a seal in our lives that God has sealed us with the promise of salvation. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us, not only for us, but the Holy Spirit intercedes through us. The Holy Spirit makes believers new and gives them eternal life. The Holy Spirit is the one that sanctifies us and enables to bear good fruit. How could we survive without relationship and knowledge of the Holy Spirit? They had not heard that the Holy Spirit was being poured out on those who believed. And friend, you need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. We cannot live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And sadly, we live in a day where the Holy Spirit is the forgotten God of the church. We're now... It's Father, Son, Holy Scriptures, and we've left out the Holy Spirit, but I believe tonight that the Holy Spirit wants to baptize you in fire. I believe tonight that the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be released on those of you that ask. Jesus said, here's how you get the Holy Spirit. You ask the Father, and the Father being the good Father that He is, He gives the Holy Spirit to them that ask. And friend, I'm telling you, tell me if this isn't the truth. I couldn't survive without the Holy Spirit. I look at some Christians that don't walk in the Spirit, that don't live in the Spirit. And I, my question is, how are you surviving without the Holy Spirit? We need the outpouring. Now, I know there's many people that teach and preach, and I've gotten caught sometimes talking to, talking like this as well, that, oh, you know, just believe and you. everybody just gets the Holy Spirit. There's no encounter. There's no experience. There's no manifestation. You don't need tongues. You don't need any of that. It's just believe in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit. But I want to show you that Paul says there's something else than just believing in baptism or believing in what John the Baptist preached. So Acts 19, three through four, and I'm, I'm trying to slow down, but you guys know it's hard for me. So just watch this later in 0.75 speed. Um, Acts 19, three through four. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? Okay, so they hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit, but let me explain that in a minute. Unto then, what were you baptized? Paul's like, then what were you baptized when you got baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him, capital H, who would come after, that is on Christ Jesus. So Paul questioned them on baptism, and it turns out they were baptized by either John the Baptist himself or John's followers. And Paul calls this, very important, the baptism of repentance. This was not the same baptism happening in Acts. This was not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Their professed ignorance about the Holy Spirit does not mean they never heard of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, John's disciples knew the Old Testament, which is loaded with references of the Holy Spirit. He knew, they knew of John the Baptist, and they knew that John the Baptist clearly prophesied that Christ's main work was to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. If you look at Matthew 3, Luke 3, John 1, John the Baptist makes it clear that Jesus would come and baptize in the Holy Spirit. So John goes, I'm baptizing in water unto repentance, but one comes greater who has a greater baptism, whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. He's the one that baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't like they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. What they were saying was, we didn't know that when you believe in Christ, there was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when they say, we don't even know what you're talking about, the Holy Spirit, they were talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because clearly, the Old Testament talked about the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist prophesied Jesus would come and baptize in the Holy Spirit. But what they hadn't heard about was Pentecost, which was the day the Holy Spirit came to live in people on anyone who would put their faith in Jesus. 
The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the reality that we see throughout the book of Acts. Remember, Peter testified that God approved of the Gentiles by validating them by pouring out his spirit. Remember this, Peter makes this argument. Listen, how could you guys say the Gentiles need to be circumcised when God clearly poured out his Holy Spirit and validated that they are now, they can now become believers or Christians by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was God validating the Gentiles. This had already happened, but here we are in Acts 19, the believers at Ephesus, they did not believe or did not experience or know about that Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what I wanna be very careful, and I wanna really illuminate this tonight, I don't wanna downplay the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you right now, it's a real thing that happens. And for me, it happened January 12th of 2011 when I went to that altar and I basically said, God, if you are real, I'll do anything. I don't believe in you. I'm a self-proclaimed atheist. Although I was raised in the church up till the age of 16, I became so hard-hearted and numb that I said, God, I don't really believe in you. And that is when God spoke to me. I encountered him and then I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I believed in him, I put my faith in him, and I had a real encounter with God where from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, I felt the Holy Spirit rush through. I began to speak in tongues that I had only heard one time in my entire life, and I didn't know what was going on. I was putting my hand over my mouth trying to stop them, and I was baptized that night in the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of people that say, you don't have to worry about that. Just believe in Jesus and you have it. But it was it's a real thing. If you could remember the day that you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, type it in the chat right now. That moment that you were born again, that you experienced the power of God. Now, not everybody feels something tangibly, but a lot of times you do. But by faith, we say, Lord, I want your baptism. You need to ask. Jesus said ask. He didn't say, oh, just get saved and you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's something that we should be asking God for. And tonight... We will pray at the end of this broadcast for you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So don't stress if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, we're going to pray for you, but I don't want to undervalue it. I want to make sure that you see in Acts 19 that it was a literal thing that happened, okay? It's a real event that took place here. Acts 19.5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, now this is interesting because this is the only place in the New Testament where anyone is said to have been re-baptized. And it highlights the fact that there's a massive difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. So again, the only place in scripture where we see somebody get baptized again, and they were rebaptized into the baptism of Jesus Christ. John's baptism was a ceremonial path of repentance. It represented commitment to a radical life of change. And you're announcing that you're going to live a better life in preparation of Christ coming. Okay. So that's John's baptism. John was out in the wilderness baptizing people, the baptism of repentance. Jesus comes, pours out his Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they begin baptizing in Acts 2.38 and, and on in Jesus's baptism. So it's not the same as John's baptism. It's a different baptism. John's baptism is a declaration in which believers are dipped in water to announce that they believe in Jesus and they welcome him when he comes as their Lord and Savior. But Jesus's baptism is a declaration that now you're serving God, you're going after God, you're now a believer, that your old life dies and you're resurrected in new life. That watery grave we've talked about and there's Old Testament parallels and everything like that. But that's the important thing to understand. The baptism of John is repentance. I wanna serve you, Lord. I'm getting ready for the coming of Christ and then Christ come, baptism of the Holy Spirit and then Christ's baptism. Acts 19, six through seven. Now pay attention, okay. So now we know they got baptized in Christ's baptism. So they got rebaptized in Christ's baptism. And then look what it says in 19, six through seven. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues or with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Very, very important right here because Paul did not stop at water baptism and say, okay, like most churches preach, you've been baptized, praise the Lord. You know, we all get the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ and when we get saved. No, Paul takes it a step further, lays his hands on them, which is a biblical reality. And now the Holy Spirit comes on them. If you wonder why do we lay hands on people when we're praying, because this is what Paul did in Acts 19.6. And they spoke in tongues and they prophesied and there was about 12 in all. It's a real reality, speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
Now, when he, now, his laying on of hands was not just a spiritual act. It also symbolized acceptance into Christian fellowship. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and there was a very, very powerful encounter that they had. John the Baptist brought people up to the point of readiness to change, but only Jesus could spiritually baptize them where his Holy Spirit would live in them, and now they're able to live a changed life. Okay, without the Holy Spirit, it's very, very hard to live that changed life. But now we have the ability to live the changed life. So they were baptized in John's baptism. Paul comes and says, listen, you need the baptism of Christ and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They get baptized in Christ, and then they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. So it's more than just water baptism. There's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that the Bible says that we should ask for, and it's a different event. Jesus, again, said, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus did not say, if you just put your faith in me, you automatically have the Holy Spirit. Our job is Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. I'm telling you, we get the whole package. I'm not trying to water it down. I'm not trying to say, listen, you don't have the Holy Ghost because you didn't have this crazy encounter. I'm saying we have the chance to get the full package. Repentance, water baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like, why are we not preaching this in the church? Why do we just say, oh, you already have the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about it. When the Bible makes it clear, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul did not say, just become a Christian and pray the sinner's prayer. Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and they prophesy. Now, this is important because we don't want to downplay these things from happening and say it's not needed. If we say it's not needed for this type of encounter, why did Paul do it? Why was it needed for Paul? Why did Paul feel the need, and I'm just trying to challenge some of your guys' theology, to lay hands on them and the Holy Spirit come upon them? You've been probably taught over and over by tradition, this isn't significant, it doesn't matter. My, call, my calling to you tonight is, choose the Bible over tradition. Choose the Bible over denomination. If there's a chance to side with tradition or the Bible, I'm choosing the Bible every single time. I will always choose the Bible over tradition. So... We have to get out of this watering down the baptism of the Holy Spirit saying, it's just an automatic thing. It's no big deal. It's not really an experience. It was here in Acts chapter 19. Again, not every single person has to have this crazy radical experience. I don't think if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. I don't believe that, but I am telling you that this is available to you if you ask God for it. He desires you to have this. So they all spoke in tongues, not some of them wasn't an interpretation they all spoke in tongues and prophesied and that's that heavenly language first corinthians chapter 14 if you want to know about the different types of tongues which literally the gift of tongues is called different kinds of tongues a lot of guys say well it's not heavenly tongues it's just a natural language the actual gift is called different kinds of tongues so there's not just one type of speaking in tongues there's different types there's times where you speak in an unknown language there's times where you speak in an unknown language with an interpretation there's times where you speak in a heavenly language rome first uh, corinthians 14 where nobody understands you this is you making inter session to God. Um, there's different types of tongues. I have videos on all of that. Acts 19, eight through nine. And he went into the synagogue and boldly spoke for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Okay. So here's Paul going from synagogue to synagogue, as we've seen him do before. And some believing and there be fruit be fruit is uh he's bearing fruit and then others persecuting paul and kicking paul out and saying we don't want that in here you're teaching something false we don't believe in christ crucified and paul ultimately ends taking the disciples out of the synagogue with them ends up teaching at the school of tyrannus which was a lecture hall that paul taught at daily for the next several years here's what i want to show you and this is very important circle this highlight this in your bible one of the most incredible scriptures in the Bible, Acts 19.10. I want you to pay attention to this. And this continued for two years. What continued? Paul teaching in the school of Tyrannus. This was a lecture hall. This continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. I want you to notice this. The ministry was so powerful God's kingdom was expanding so violently, the move of God was taking off, that now, within those two years, all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Father, do that again. Can we have a time again where every person in California hears the word? Where every person in America hears the word of God? Where we can say, 
all in the United States have heard the word of God. Like this is so powerful. Paul spent three total years in Ephesus with his co-laborers, who was all these different men of God that were advancing the kingdom. An army rose up and all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And this is an incredible impact that we can make, an incredible impact that we've called, that God has called us to do. I look at sometimes my mission, my calling, right? I upload every day. I'm on here preparing. I'm on here live streaming. I'm putting out content, almost 700 videos. And there's days where I'm tired, like today. Like I'm right now, as I'm preaching, in an extreme amount of pain all the way down my neck and back. And I, I go, God, should I just not go on? Should I just not record? Should I not upload? There's times where, and I'm not comparing myself to Paul, but stay with what I'm saying, where I'm up till midnight, got to get up at 3 a.m. to travel, but I have to stay up late to film videos. But then I understand the principle of faithfulness, that if I stay faithful, God will continue to increase, grow, and people will be reached. I want to challenge some of you. Maybe you have a small ministry, a large ministry. Maybe you have an online ministry, a ministry on social media or in person, or you travel or you uh, preach on the corner, or you have a homeless outreach or whatever ministry you have, and you're getting tired and weary. Paul, for two years daily taught in this lecture hall, every day. Talk about daily uploads, Paul was teaching. The goal is this, faithfulness. God, I'm gonna keep pressing. Whether people watch or not, whether the views are high or not, whether I'm discouraged or not, whether I'm in pain or not, whether I want to or not, whether I'm tired or not, I'm going to keep being faithful every day, putting the word of the God out there, every day posting some type of encouragement, every day posting videos and going and reaching people. I don't wanna challenge every one of you that there's no substitute for faithfulness. And so because of Paul, not fall, Paul's faithfulness, we're able to see the word of the Lord. Everyone in Asia hears it. Acts 19, 11 through 12. Now, I love this. Now God, okay, I want you to, I want you to, I'm going to read it like this for a reason. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and disease left them and evil spirits went out of them. Wow, that is a lot to cover. A lot of stuff happened there. I want you to notice something very interesting begins to take place in Ephesus. People began to use Paul's handkerchiefs the Greek word meaning sweat rags and aprons worn by Paul. Remember, Paul's a tent maker. They're getting Paul's sweaty aprons, sweaty handkerchiefs from him working as a tent maker, and they're bringing those, and the sick are touching the handkerchiefs and being healed. And demons are being cast out by these handkerchiefs. This is in your Bible, y'all. Some of you are like, where's this been on Sunday morning? I've never heard this before. Let me make something explicitly clear. It was God doing the healing not Paul's handkerchief, okay? It was God doing the work. These handkerchiefs were a point of contact. They were a place of faith that people can lean into, but this was God doing the miracle. It was not the handkerchiefs that were doing the miracle. It was not Paul that was doing the miracle. Because I want you to notice in the beginning of Acts 19.11, what does it say? Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So who was the one working the miracles? God by the hands of Paul. So that means when we're laying hands on the sick, it's not our hand that's healing them, it's God working through our bodies, through our hands, through whatever means it is. So we don't wanna venerate handkerchiefs. In other words, we don't wanna worship handkerchiefs. We don't wanna make them idols of worship. We don't wanna make aprons idols of worship. Can God heal with handkerchiefs? Of course he can. God can use anything to heal the sick. But we don't wanna begin to make a doctrine of handkerchiefs are how you get healed. And if I could only get a handkerchief, I could get healed. No, you need God. That's what you need. The handkerchief is a contact point of faith, but at the end of the day, God is the one that does the work. I have seen people that I know personally healed of cancer because of a handkerchief. A friend of mine that was uh, handing out handkerchiefs in one of our church services, I, we had another friend take it and God healed that person of cancer from the handkerchief. It wasn't the handkerchief that healed them. It was God working through it, which God can do. So this is a very perplexing scripture text that a lot of religious people that are very reserved when it comes to the supernatural, they want to kind of explain this away. I don't want to do that. I don't want to explain these things away. I want to give the biblical, uh, the biblical, how do I say this context? And that is what you have to notice. God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So when I'm praying for the sick, here's the practical thing. Thank you, God, that you're working through me. It's not my effort. It's not my anything. It's God's power working through me. We are not the healers. God is the healers and God works through people. 
So a lot of people in the U.S., they don't believe this. And in fact, sadly today, rarely people in the U.S., if this happened, they would do things like uh, call Paul a false teacher, call Paul a false prophet. If Paul did this today in the United States, like just right now, 2022, Paul's in the church doing this, and this has never done, been done before. There would be a thousand videos on YouTube titled, Paul, the false apostle who claims his handkerchiefs heal the sick, followed by people bashing Paul, saying what he's do is not, doing is not biblical. Paul should be avoided. Every heresy hunter channel on YouTube would be making videos about Paul saying he's a false prophet. The comment section would be people ranting and raving about how lost Paul is, how Paul is a wolf, how Paul isn't saved, what a joke Paul is. And here's the truth. And here's what we learn from verses like this. This is what we learned from this verse. God can use whatever he wants and God can do whatever he wants. This is the sovereignty of God. That's the point. God does not need permission to move how he wants to move. So if God wants to move with handkerchiefs or blankets or aprons, God can. And even though Paul would have had a thousand videos about how he was false, it wouldn't have mattered. We need to be very careful, friend, not to say something's not from God when we don't know whether, if it is or not. After all, look at the Pharisees. What did they do? They accused Jesus of being of Satan when he casted out demons. Friend, if I had $1 for every time I got called a false teacher or a false prophet for this one reason that I cast out demons. Friend, this is the, the hour that we live in where if you do what Jesus did, you're labeled false. But if you don't do what Jesus did, you're labeled a real good Christian. If you don't pray for the sick, if you don't raise the dead, if you don't cast out demons, if you don't live a supernatural life, if you don't flow in the gifts, oh, you're a good Sunday morning Christian. But the moment you try to cast out devils, come on, chat, let me know some, let me know you're here. The moment you try to heal the sick, now you're considered a false prophet. Now you're of the devil. But Jesus made it clear Satan can't cast out Satan. I have yet to see a demon cast out or Satan heal anybody. And then after the someone says, oh, pray Satan. Friend, every time a demon's cast out, God gets the glory. Every time somebody's healed, God gets the glory. And so this was God, Acts 19, working unusual miracles through the hands of Paul. Lord, I'm asking you to do that through me. If nobody else wants it, I don't even care. Make more videos about me. Make more videos about me. I want to see unusual miracles just like they saw in the Bible. I'm not interested in being babysat on Sunday morning and never seeing this. I'm willing to be rejected. I'm willing to be persecuted because I want to see God's kingdom establish. There's something powerful that happens when you say, Lord, I'm willing. I'm a vessel for you, and I don't care about the scrutiny. I don't care about those that talk bad about me. Just like sickness is contagious, Jesus is contagious. Jesus should be rubbing off on people. The same way sickness rubs off on people, Jesus should be rubbing off on people. The same way sickness travels from person to person, the good news travels from person to person. We need to spread the gospel. Think about this. God works unusual miracles. Handkerchiefs are healing the sick and demons are being cast out. Now there's an argument in a lot of reformed theology that says, if you look through Acts, the deliverances stopped happening. The miracles stopped happening. Well, we are in Acts 19 and there's still people getting healed and demons are still being cast out through handkerchiefs. Now, let me ask you this question. Okay. I feel inspired to say this. If a handkerchief is casting out a demon. If people are getting delivered through a handkerchief, why are you so scared of doing deliverance? If God can use a handkerchief to drive out a demon, why can't God use you to drive out a demon? And if handkerchiefs or deliverance is happening through handkerchiefs, why would deliverances not happen through believers anymore today? So can God do miracles through handkerchiefs, but not people any longer? Do you see the, the logic is so faulty here? Acts 19. Well, what about the end of Acts? There's no more miracles. Uh, Acts, I believe it's 28, where Paul's on the island of Malta, which is the very end. Paul heals the whole island, and there's a great revival happening. So what are you talking about? Miracles got slower. Are you kidding me? The very end of Acts was a miracle explosion on an island. Again, I could go all day on that. It's false. Okay, Acts 19, 13 through 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, this is interesting, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, okay, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so, and the evil spirit answered and said, are you guys catching this? These are Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva. They're trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches about. And the evil spirit answered and said, 
Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the Bible says, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they left out the house naked and wounded. Very interesting story here, because you have a group of Jewish exorcists that saw Paul casting out demons, saw that it worked, and tried using Paul's method. What was Paul's method? We know because they're trying to copy it. His method was commanding the demons out in the name of Jesus. How do you know? Because that's what they were copying. Paul was casting out demons in Jesus' name. The Jewish exorcists saw this is working. And so they try to use the name of Jesus as a magic word, not understanding the emphasis on the name of Jesus was not just the name, but relationship with the name. The problem was the name of Jesus is not a magical word you say where you say in Jesus' name, and then it just works. The power comes from being in relationship with the person whose name that you're calling out for. So if I say I come in Jesus' name but have no relationship, then there's no spiritual authority, and the demons are going to do what they did here and say, who are you? So they were, Bible says, casting out demons in the name of whom Paul preaches about showing they only had a second knowledge or a not a, a direct connection but they're trying to make connection with jesus through paul and the evil spirit speaks out of the man jesus i know paul i know but who are you in other words we don't know you this is what the demon said to them we don't know you your name hasn't come up in our board meetings you've made no impact on our kingdom and one thing I've heard over and over and over throughout the entire country of casting out demons in over 35 states is the demon saying, we know who you are. I'll be across in North Carolina and I'm in California now and I'll be over there preaching and casting out demons. And a demon in North Carolina will say, we know who you are. Think about how crazy that is. How do they know? Because my name's being discussed and they're planning. Okay, my, I'm making impact on Satan's kingdom so the demons know me. And it's not just enough that God knows you. I want the demons to know me. And I know this video will be taken out of context. So I just, I'm ruining it here for them because they're going to clip that one part. But it's important that you're actually making impact on Satan's kingdom and that the demons actually know who you are. And here's what the Bible says. They fled naked and battered. In other words, it's dangerous to preach about a Jesus that you have no relationship with. It's dangerous to try to cast out demons when your walk is fake. And the worst part about this entire story is not these fakers trying to cast out demons. It's the guy that didn't get freedom. He didn't get delivered. So here's the, here's the lesson. People stay in bondage because we only have a relationship for, with God through our pastor. People stay in bondage. Oh, come on, help me preach Holy Spirit. Because we only have a connection with God through somebody else. My pastor has a prayer life. Isaiah casts out demons. Isaiah heals the sick. My pastor does this. And so when we're casting out demons, we're doing it in the name of Jesus, whom our pastor preaches about. But you need to have a real relationship with God, a real walk. One of the verses in our generation that is taken out of context more than any other in deliverance is Matthew 7, 21 that says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my father. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, religious people use this to say, we shouldn't do deliverance because even those that cast out demons aren't saved. Look at right here. It says they'll say they cast out demons. So they'll say things like Isaiah is not a real Christian because look, even the demons, even the uh, unbelievers say they cast out demons. That's not at all what the verse is saying. The verse is not discouraging deliverance. The verse is encouraging us if we're going to do these things to make sure we have a genuine relationship. The verse is about not having a relationship with God. It's not about convincing us to not do deliverance. Okay, so I never knew you. That is intimacy. That's the same word where it says Joseph never knew Mary. They didn't have intimacy before Jesus was born. He was born of a virgin. God is using that same word to say, I don't have any intimacy. We don't know each other. I don't know you intimately. So again, he's not discouraging prophecy or casting out demons. He's encouraging us to have a relationship and not be fake to actually do this for real. This is going to be in Matthew 7, 21. Um, 
someone saying slow down, you're gonna have to watch this later on 0.75 because I got a lot to cover and we're already 35 minutes in, okay? So the, 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 the lesson is this, true authority comes from not only saying the name, but having relationship relationship with the person whose name you're saying. And trust me, I'm doing my best to talk slow. This is slow for me. If I had it my way, I'd be talking three times faster. Acts 19, 17 through 20. Now pay attention to what happens here now. This became known, what is that? This failed deliverance, okay? This became known to both all, I'm sorry, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And look what happens. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the value and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mighty and prevailed. I want you to think about this. A failed deliverance brought fear upon the people and revival broke out. And now Jesus's name was suddenly known and respected all over town. Think about how crazy that is. Just because there was a failed deliverance, the name of Jesus was lifted up. The Bible says here magnified and many believed and began to burn their witchcraft books fit up to 50,000 pieces of silver value. So let me ask you this question in the chat. If a failed deliverance could exalt the name of Jesus, cause the city of Ephesus to go into revival, cause witches and warlocks to burn about two to three million US dollars of today's currency worth of magic books, what do you think real deliverance could do? That's a good point, brother Isaiah. If a failed deliverance can cause a revival, how much more does a real deliverance bring honor and glory to God? People begin to wake up to the fact that Christ, faith in him, and incantations were incompatible. In other words, we cannot have these new age practices and this occultism and these magic incantations and be compatible with having faith in Christ. These dependents they had on charms, occult practices and items were now abandoned, were burned and replaced by faith in Christ. And the Bible says people began to reveal their secret sin and confess their deeds. And they ended up burning several million dollars of witchcraft books. Witches and warlocks are putting, making a bonfire out of their occult deeds all because a failed deliverance showed the power of Jesus over the power of the enemy. The casting out of demons causes people to see how much more powerful God is than Satan. Nobody after seeing a demon cast out says, pray Satan. Here's what happens. People repent. People turn to faith. People see God's power over Satan. And the same effect in Acts 19 where people turn to God, fear his name, and burn millions of dollars of witchcraft books happens today. We get constant messages of people saying, I saw a video or a teaching of you casting out demons, and since then I've renounced all of my magic, I've turned to God, I've left the new age. Why? Because they realize they're on the losing side. Casting out demons is a physical sign of a spiritual reality that Satan's kingdom is being publicly humiliated and destroyed and God's kingdom is being established. So if we don't cast out demons, we rob people the chance of seeing Satan's kingdom defeated in the open. The essence of the gospel was Jesus setting people free. So stop acting like Jesus is not for deliverance. Stop acting like Jesus doesn't want us to cast out demons. It's his ministry and he still wants to do it today. Absolutely incredible. A failed deliverance brings a revival, yet we're scared to do deliverances saying, well, brother, if we do deliverance, the devil's gonna get glory. Really? Where's that ever happened at? Show me that in scripture. Well, brother, if we do deliverance, a demon's gonna jump out of one person and jump into another person in the audience. Show me that in scripture. Where's that at? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, brother, if we talk too much about deliverance and the devil's plans, you know, we're gonna honor and glorify him. I've never, ever, ever seen the devil get glory when we expose him. Imagine thinking that exposing Satan gives him glory. Like all these arguments and statements that you've been told by a leader or a pastor or some yo-yo religious person, they're not biblical because biblically deliverance sees breakthrough. Deliverance sees people saved. Deliverance makes people in awe of God. Ask anybody that's been delivered. How is your faith after? And they're all going to tell you a thousand times greater. Those that have done deliverance, can you testify in the chat? The moment you saw deliverance, what happened? My faith increased when I cast out a demon. All these ideas of demons jumping out of one person into another, these are all made up to, to, by the devil to scare people from doing deliverance. 
Who do you think made up the idea that Christians can't have a demon? You think God's the one that's like, oh yeah, Christians, don't worry about getting freedom. This is only for the world. No, deliverance is the children's bread, the Bible says. So the devil wants you to think you don't need freedom. The devil wants you to think deliverance is not for today. The devil wants you to think this can happen, but according to the book of Acts, I'm sorry to tell you, you're wrong. Acts 19, 21 through 22. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit, and when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also go to Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So he sends them, he says, I want to go to Rome, but he stays for a little longer. Acts 19, 23 through 24. This is a long chapter tonight, guys. I know some of these are short, some of these are long. And about that time, there rose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Okay, so Ephesus, the capital, not only of occultism and witchcraft, but of idolatry. So now we go from a revival in the witchcraft movement. They're burning their books. Failed deliverance brings glory to the name of God. I mean, it's, it's in, incredible what's happening. Unusual miracles, handkerchief miracles, to now Demetrius, who is a silversmith, is angry because Paul is literally putting out of, him out of business. And so now there's a great commotion about the way. The way being obviously the message of the gospel of Christ. So Ephesus, not only is occultism, witchcraft, but also idolatry. The city's greatest claim and fame was the Temple of Diana, which has aliases Art Artemis or Aphrodite. Artemis, Aphrodite are just other aliases for Diana. This is the goddess of love, fertility, and nourishment. The structure of the Temple of Diana was larger than a football field. It had a roof that was supported by 126-foot-high stone columns. The priest and the prostitute priestesses served worshipers and tourists from all over the world. The temple was the center of everything in Ephesus, including religion, art, and banking. This was the epicenter right here in Ephesus, the, the temple of Diana. And if you were a true Diana worshiper, the goddess was the most, uh, or the goddess Diana, this was the most beautiful relic in the world. Her temple contained an image of her, which they believed fell down from Zeus, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Acts 19.25, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. So Demetrius, the silversmith, who's making idols and people are buying and traveling and stuff, he gets other people, the Bible says, of the similar occupation, and he's convincing them, like, listen, guys, we're making our living from this. And in fact, month is the lust month. And uh, it has an annual festival called the Festival of Diana. It honors the goddess and nearly the entire province converged to Ephesus to worship and to compete in like Olympic games. So think of like the World Series, the Olympics, the NBA Finals, the State Fair, every event you could think of rolled into one. That was the last month of May. And this was the annual festival. It was a month long and it was called the Festival of Diana and it would honor her. And they be many believe scholars that this is the time this was going on. So not only is Paul putting them out of business, but now you have all these tourists coming in and we're going to lose a ton of money because these guys are preaching the way and nobody wants to buy our idols. And we're literally putting the idol makers out of business. Okay. So these were souvenir manufacturers. Acts 19, 26 through 28. Moreover, you see in here, not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all a Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is the trade of ours in danger of failing into dis uh, disre disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence may be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. Think about this. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and they cried out saying great is diana of the ephesians okay so here's what's going on here they basically demetrius is saying look guys paul and his team have gone through all of asia and they're saying that the god they serve is not the god made by hands and what does that mean for all of our false gods what does that mean for all these temples and these idols Number one, it means we're going to lose tons of money. Number two, all of Asia and the whole world worships these gods. And now Paul is turning them away. So Paul is threatening them. And this riot is going to begin to break out. Demetrius convincing them that Paul is hurting our income. Now, this is one of the things that revival preaching does in the church today. It threatens the idolatrous business of megachurches, okay? There's many megachurches where... Not all of them. There's some really good mega churches, but for a large amount of them, there's pastors that have fallen out of love with God. 
They've fallen out of fervor. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to preach a biblical gospel. And when you come in there with radical preaching or you have a radical gospel message like die to self, surrender everything, it threatens big business megachurch, big Christian idolatry, and it makes them mad. This is why the revivalists and the prophets of our generation are not welcomed in some of these mega churches because they are centers of idolatry and we are threatening the very fiber of how they've been built. And that is get as many people in and as many people out to make as much money as possible so we can continue on business as usual throughout the week. There's no mention of hell, no mention of repentance, no deliverance, no supernatural healing, no gospel of the kingdom, no blood, no cross. I had tons of people writing me saying that in my church, there was more mention of the Easter bunny this last weekend than on the cross of Christ. I had people writing me saying they didn't even talk about the blood on Easter. They didn't even talk about the resurrection. So now we have these big productions where we get as many people to fill out cards and tithe and give, but there's no power of God. That's just what was happening here. Paul was threatening the idolatry by preaching the biblical gospel. Okay, now we're going to go. We're almost done here. We're going to go to Acts 19, 29 through 41 because it's going to just describe what happened. So it's a lot of reading. Just stay with me. Don't jump out. Let me read this through here. It's a long text, but I don't just want to skip the whole text. So the Bible says, So now the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and um, Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. I know I'm pronouncing these all wrong. Oh, well. Verse 30. And when Paul wanted to go into the the people, the disciples would not allow him to. Verse 31. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Okay, so here's this massive riot happening in the theater, and nobody knows why they're there. Everybody's screaming. Demetrius has started this riot against Paul, but people are just confused. They're just joining because it's the thing to do. Kind of like what we see riots today. Verse 33, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, with one voice they cried for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians, okay? These people are crazy. They're crying for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians in this theater. Verse 35, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd after two hours, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So the city council is saying this, look, everybody knows that uh, Diana is the temple guardian of Ephesus. There's no threat. We know her image fell down to us from Zeus. So stop acting like Paul's threatening that. Just everybody settle down. Verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if any of you have an inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. Therefore, being no reason which we may have to give an account for this disorderly conduct. Um, Disorderly gathering, verse 41. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So here's what happened here in this long text. All these shoppers in the marketplace, Demetrius is rioting. There's a 25,000 seat open air theater and everybody begins to pour in this theater for hours, screaming, debating, rioting, and they don't even know why they're mad. They just know somebody else is mad. So I'm going to be mad too, but there's no real reason. And I want to challenge some of you that are just mad at a certain preacher or a certain pastor or a certain doctrine. And you don't even know why, just because everybody else is don't jump on the bandwagon. Don't jump on the bandwagon, whether it's political, whether it's spiritual, whether it's doctrinal, just because everybody else jumps on. And then I ask you, why do you believe that? And you go, oh, I don't know. I was just raised that way. I don't know. Everybody else believes that. I just like the Christians can't have demons. People don't even know why they say, oh, well, oppress and possess. And I say, well, show me that in the Bible. And they can't show me because it's not in the Bible. But we jump on these bandwagons of this is someone's against us or somebody's wrong or we riot and riot and riot. And what was clear here is we're rioting and we don't even know why. 
So don't get behind something and become a social justice warrior if you don't even know the issue at hand. This is our world today. They get behind movements and it's like, why are you even behind that? It's just because everybody else is doing it. So the city clerk finally said, hey, everyone be quiet. You have no grounds for this riot. And at the end, uh, and that's the end of chapter 19 and a very eventful chapter. I know it took a long time. Uh, it's, it's a long chapter. We'll go through a little bit of chapter 20 here, but let me recap chapter 19. At Ephesus, Ephesus, Paul met 12 men who appeared to be Christians. They were disciples of John the Baptist, but they had never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul lays hands on them and they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Paul then teaches in uh, the synagogue in Ephesus. And then all of a sudden opposition comes where Paul would spend the next two years daily teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. From there, his message was taken through all Asia where every person had heard the message. From Acts 19, 11 through 20, Paul's clothing items are brought to people that are sick and people are being healed because of Paul's aprons and handkerchiefs and demons are being cast out. Occult books are burned in a huge bonfire. Acts 19, 21 through 41, Christianity has such an impact in Ephesus that it threatens to bankrupt idol makers and craftsmen, craftsmen that are selling pagan artifacts. The metal workers demonstrate ought against Paul. A riot breaks out. Finally, it's disrupted by or it's dispersed by the city council, okay? So let's go quickly here because I want to make a couple points and we have a little bit more time to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So the, the riot of the silversmiths had shown Paul that his continued presence in Ephesus would create more problems for the young Ephesian church than good. So after three years, according to Acts 20, 31, after three years, Paul decides it's time to move on. He called the believers together. He encouraged them to keep the faith and gave his final goodbye. It's a sad moment. It's a sad moment. Three years Paul had poured into these people at Ephesus, and now Paul has to call it quits because he recognizes there's just too much heat. And if I stay, it's going to bring a lot of reproach and a lot of persecution against this young church. So it's best for me to move on and to go to the next place. And I think sometimes this is a point we can draw out. We struggle to leave a church, a city, or a place. But remember, sometimes transition is a healthy thing. There are times where you have to say, it's time for me to move on. It's time for me to transition out. It's time for me to go somewhere else. And Paul recognized this. Acts 22 through 3. Now when he had gone over that region, encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there for three months. So this was Paul's pattern. Teach them, encourage them, strengthen them, appoint elders, pray for them, and then move on, okay? Acts 23 through 5. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sapater of Berea accompanied him into Asia. Also, Arist, uh, how do I even say this? Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, Timothy, and um, Tychicus, again, these are hard to say, and Trophimus of Asia. These men go ahead, waited for, waited for us at Tro, um, Troas. Okay, so these are, again, a bunch of Paul's men that are traveling with them. You know Paul doesn't like traveling alone. All these names I can't say, super hard to pronounce. At least eight of these guys are going with Paul to Jerusalem on this trip that he's going on. Acts 20, verse 6. But he sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where he stayed seven days. So Paul and Luke sailed from Philippi after the feast of unleavened bread in AD 57. The twin feasts of the Passover and unleavened bread were celebrated in Jerusalem from April 7th through the 14th. The next big festival would be Pentecost, six weeks later. Paul celebrated Passover in Philippi, and from there, him and Luke took a ship to Troas to rejoin the team. Um, Acts 20, again, this is all just Paul going from here to there, sending people, so it's not of super importance. Acts 20, 7 through 8, okay? Very important. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they gathered there. Okay, so Luke, very important. This is what I want to end on. Luke gives us a very rare glimpse into an early church meeting. And this is what the church meeting looked like. Now, this is far off from what church looks like today in America or wherever you live. But this is the church service that Luke is describing in Acts 27 through 8, okay? Let me read it again. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, gathered together. So a, for a couple points, number one, they met on Sunday. This is the first New Testament reference to the first day as the regular meeting time for Christians. So they met here on the first day of the week, and that would be a Sunday very important because the the idea of meeting God on the first day of the week is putting God first. These New Testament believers put God first in everything they did. This is the call to all of us. I got to put first God first in my job. I got to put God first when I wake up in the morning. I got to put first God first in my marriage. I got to put God first during the week. So many people in this chat listening live right now have broken lives because God is third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. God is no longer a priority. And whenever you use the excuse, well, I don't have time any longer, it's proof that God is not first. God wants us to make him first in our life. When God is not a priority, nothing else is gonna work. And some of you say, well, I don't again, I don't have time, but you make time for things that are valuable. If work is valuable, you make time for it. If, if uh, movies are valuable, you make time for it. If your kids are valuable, you make time for them. It's not an issue of time, it's an issue of priorities. Some of you say, well, Isaiah, I have to work because if I don't work, I can't support my family financially. But you also can't support your family spiritually if you don't pray. So this idea that if we have, you know, we work hard, we can't be spiritual is wrong because you can be spiritual and work hard. You can pray a lot and work a lot. So this idea of balancing is all about priorities. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added. So if you need help in your marriage, if you need help at work, if you need help at school, if you need help in relationships, seek God first and everything else that you need will be added. A thousand other issues in life can be solved by seeking God first. And if we seek him first, we wouldn't have to constantly pray asking God to fix things that are broken that would have never been broken if we asked God in the first place. So God needs to be a priority. So they met the first day of the week. They ate together. So they celebrated the Lord's Supper, which is Holy Communion. That's like literally taking communion. And they also had a meal together, which would be like a potluck meal. Uh, they would call it in the book of Acts, a love feast where they got together and ate. So meeting the first day of the week, eating together, and then they met at night, usually to accommodate, accommodate the slaves who could only come after their day's work was over. So that's one of the reasons why you're gonna see them meeting at night is because there were slaves at that time and the slaves had to finish their work and they wanted to come hear the message. So they would meet at night to let the slaves be able to come. They met in an upper room. The length of the meeting, very important. This is a church service described here. The length of the meeting is not regulated by a clock. Amen, somebody. The focus was not how quick can we get in and how quick can we get out. They were so hungry because Paul was leaving the next day. And the Bible says Paul preached till midnight. In fact, Paul would end up preaching till midnight. Next time we teach, we'll go on the story of Eutychus who dies in the middle of Paul's sermon. But Paul would preach until the sun comes up. So Paul literally went on for hours. If some of you think I'm long-winded, Paul was way longer-winded than me in how long Paul preached. He would continue to preach because he knew this could be the last time they would hear him. I wonder how we would preach to friends and family if we knew this would be the last time they ever heard us preach the gospel or this would be the last time they ever heard the gospel. You know, oftentimes when I see people, whether it's on the newspaper, friends or family, pass away unexpectedly, I always think about what was the last message they ever heard. This was not some watered down message. This was a message of urgency that Paul would preach because Paul knew that this would be the last time possibly he would ever preach to them. And I want to live my life just like tonight with that sense of urgency you know when i travel and preach we have these clocks in the back when we preach we have this clocks where it says you know you have 25 minutes or 35 minutes or 45 minutes and as you're preaching in churches there's the clock on the back wall counting down and oftentimes if you wonder maybe why i preach with such urgency and intensity i often think what if that clock was counting down till all of us we're dead. Like at the end of that countdown, we all were going to die. What would I preach as if this was the last 30 minutes I ever preached? Or what would I preach if that 30 minute countdown was the last time these people are going to hear the gospel? What type of message would I be preaching? This is the urgency that we need to have. We need to preach with a sense of urgency. Tonight, this might be the last live stream that some of you ever sit in. There is a real reality that eternity is right next to us. That eternity is not, you know, a thousand years in the future. 
But we, we are all standing on the edge of eternity. And I believe tonight God wants to encounter every single one of us. We'll go through Acts 20 in our next teaching. We've already been live for an hour and 11 minutes. And so I want to pray for you guys. But I really believe that what we need right now in the body of Christ is a sense of urgency. That tomorrow is not promised. Every one of us, I can't tell you how many days and how long until, you know, Jesus comes back and all of this. But I can tell you that you are in your last days and that we are incredibly fragile, that we've bought into the lie, that we're immortal, that we are just never going to die. No, we're never going to get in a car accident. We're never going to die of a heart attack. Yet how many times do we see people dying before their time, just dying and not knowing that today was their last day? Usually nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to die in a car accident today. Usually people that die don't wake up saying, today I'm going to have a stroke. Tomorrow isn't promised to anybody to you or to me. There is a real reality that this could be the last message I ever preach. And there's a real reality that this could be the last message you ever hear. So we can't have these watered down soft messages with no urgency. There has to be an urgency in us to say, now's the day, now's the time, I gotta get right. So right now I want you just to ask God to begin to encounter you. I want you to ask him for the Holy Spirit. I believe tonight God wants to baptize us in his Holy Spirit right now, just like he did in Acts 19. They said, we don't even know the Holy Spirit. Today, God wants to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Just begin to ask him, Father, we pray right now, every single person listening, that Lord, you would baptize them in the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you'd fill them from the top of their head to the soles of their feet, the fire of God, the power of God, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Lord, if we've been water baptized, awesome. But Father, tonight we are asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Paul described in Acts 19. We are asking, Lord, that you would release your anointing, that you would release your power, that you would release your fire, that tomorrow isn't promised, that today we repent. God commands us all to repent. Acts 2.38, we must repent. There's no way getting around it. We must repent. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name, Lord, tonight, change our heart, God. We repent. Father, I repent before you. If there's any area of my life that is not of you, I repent of it, God. Lord, right now, I turn from all of my ways, and I turn to you, and I look to you, and I, and I know that I'm saved by Christ alone through faith alone. So right now, Father, I just ask you in Jesus' name, to save every single person watching that would cry out and repent, Lord, to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. If you haven't been water baptized, you should get water baptized. Okay, we water baptize every service on Sunday. We have four services and we water baptize every service. Anytime anybody wants to get water baptized, we'll baptize you right there on the spot. If you need to get baptized, come get baptized. Go get baptized. If it's a bathtub, doesn't matter. You need to be baptized. You need to repent and you need to receive the Holy Spirit. Father, tonight we are asking you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon every single one watching, on our children, God, on our in our families, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit. We want to walk this thing out. Lord, equip us to cast out demons. If Paul's handkerchief can drive out demons, how much more can you drive out demons? If Paul's handkerchief is, is demons are fleeing, how much more? And if you look at the revival that happened after the demons are cast out, after that story was spread, God desires to use you. You are a deliverer. God's called you to cast out demons as a believer, according to Mark 16. It didn't stop in the book of Acts. Stop letting religious people lie to you. It continued on. Even in Acts 19, there's demons being cast out. God desires to do it through you. Father, we pray tonight, equip us for your work, for your glory, and for your kingdom. God, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. Tonight, in Jesus' name, anoint your people, deliver your people, heal your people, Give us supernatural boldness, Father, to do what you've called us to do. We pray that the sick would be healed. Lord, right now we pray for healing in Jesus' name. Healing in Jesus' name. God, right now over bodies, over my neck, I pray, Lord, that you would bring in to heal me right now in Jesus' name. Come on, lay hands on whatever body part you need healing from. At, I mean, at. Father, I pray right now that you would just bring healing over my neck, over every person watching, Lord, every ligament, every tendon, every nerve. Right now, just release your healing power in Jesus' name. Father, we ask you just release your healing power according to your word. We know you can do it. We believe. We have no unbelief, God. We don't pray double-minded, but we pray release your Holy Spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, urgency, urgency, God, urgency in Jesus' name. We believe you, Lord, for deliverance. Every unclean spirit must go. Every unclean spirit must go in Jesus' name. Satan, you are bound. You have no power. Come up and out right now. Go into the abyss and never come back. In Jesus' name, we command every foul spirit to leave now. 
in Jesus' name. Leave now in Jesus' name. Lord, right now, we just pray breakthrough. Right now, Father, we just pray breakthrough in Jesus' mighty name. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, have your way. Do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Healing right now. All unbelief has to go. All doubt has to go. All worthlessness has to go right now. We just pray the power of Almighty God to be released. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, work right now. Touch everybody watching, I pray, Father. Touch homes right now with your healing power. Every unclean spirit must go in Jesus' name. You are bound, Satan. You have no power. Leave these people now in Jesus' name. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every foul spirit must go in Jesus' name. Father, I pray we would have intimacy. We'd know you. That we wouldn't just come in your name as if it's a magic word. But Lord, we would come in intimacy with you. That we would know you like never before. Break shame, Lord. Break guilt. Break trauma. Right now, I pray discouragement would go in Jesus' name, God. I just pray that you would bring joy, you'd bring peace, you'd bring wisdom and revelation in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Guys, if you want to sow, you can. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stay on super late tonight because I am in a lot of pain. But the links to give are right there on screen. If you're listening through audio, Spotify, Charisma, and you're still on, you can give at IsaiahSaldivar.com slash partner. You can give on Venmo at IsaiahSaldivar, PayPal.me slash IsaiahSaldivar. Um, those are all the ways that you can give. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.IsaiahSaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.